Welcome to Paradis, a broadcast dedicated to helping Christians develop a biblical worldview, preparing us to think scripturally and soundly about our world today. I'm your host, Brian Nixon. Joining me on today's broadcast is Dr. Joseph Holden, author, pastor, and president of Veritas International University, and Luke Betzner, pastor, author, and director of institutional effectiveness at Veritas International University. Welcome, gentlemen. Good to be with you both. Glad to be on, Brian. Well, our listeners may not uh, realize this, but this is a, a podcast that is taking place where Dr. Holden is actually in the studio with me. For those of you who may not know, Veritas International University is moving its main base to Albuquerque, New Mexico. So Dr. Holden uh, followed or actually preceded the truck uh, that is moving um, books and tables and desks and all of the the school material here to Albuquerque. So we're really fortunate, blessed to have you with us live, Dr. Holden. I'm glad to be here, Brian, and I'm looking forward to the good weather here, the beautiful people, and the hunger for God's Word. It's just going to be a wonderful transition, and I am already enjoying this as we go, even in these early stages. Well, throughout this semester, our focus is on apologetics, using Dr. Holden's book, Living Loud, as our springboard. During the semester broadcast, we'll touch on several important topics such as truth, God's existence, miracles, Jesus's divinity, and biblical reliability, among many other subjects. On our last episode, we answered the question, does God exist, addressing three major arguments for God's existence. If you missed the episode, I recommend you listen to it. This week, we're jumping into our third core question, asking, what about evolution? And let me set the stage. Classic Darwinian evolution is taught as a fact in many sectors of public life, including education and the social sciences. But the theory, as expressed in its classical form, is not supported by all within the scientific community and definitely not within the church. On today's broadcast, our goal is to understand evolution and show some of its problems and why it doesn't adequately answer all the questions that correspond to a real view of the world. So let's let's jump into this, Joe. What exactly is evolution and how did it change our understanding of the world? Boy, Brian, that is a big question and it can go as deep as anybody wants to go with that answer. But when we talk about evolution, many of us think of Charles Darwin, the 19th century founder of what we know as the Darwinian theory of evolution. Although Darwin may be the most well-known person associated with evolution in our modern age, its roots can actually be traced back to ancient Greek philosophers. But if you boil down what it is in its essence, evolution is the unbending central belief that all living things originated and subsequently evolved by purely natural and undirected processes. And it doesn't stop there. When the 19th century thinker Charles Darwin published his Origin of Species, and then later he published his Descent of Man, where he showed that man was actually somebody who could also be part of this evolutionary process, it took the world by storm. Even the 
educational institutions, the biblical seminaries, uh, even early Princeton University. They incorporated many of these new scientific findings into their uh, curriculum. They began to introduce it into biblical studies. Eventually, it caused a split in the school, and Westminster Theological Seminary was eventually planted in an offshoot of that issue that came forward. But what it did, which many people think, is it made the world safe for atheists. It removed the supernatural or the miraculous from our thinking when it came to investigating the sciences or nature, but also, even more importantly, the miraculous and the supernatural was removed out from biblical studies. So that leaves us with a classroom full of people who don't believe in miracles anymore. The supernatural has been taken away, and only purely naturalistic causes were sought to explain these miracles and anything that we're studying in science. So it affected the world a great deal. And, and let's be clear, Joe, this is still a theory. I mean, there's many in the world today that want to present it or promote it as fact beyond a shadow of a doubt, but it is still a theory. It, 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 it's one explanation of, of a particular segment of life's origins, but we've in a way been duped into thinking that everyone, every scientist, every person on planet Earth agrees with this particular theory, but that's just not the case. That's right. I mean, if you you can look back decades and even, uh, you know, 40 years ago, you're having evolutionary scientists, in fact, a Nobel Prize winner named George Wald, he made a statement that basically um, we can't all but accept the theory of evolution because the alternative is just unacceptable to us. So they reject more of a creation view, uh, many of them on philosophical grounds and not based on intellectual or scientific grounds. And then you have Michael Denton, who is a molecular biologist who wrote a book called Evolution, A Theory in Crisis, and he's no creationist. Uh, he's not a Christian. He wrote a book and showed all the problems with evolutionary theory, and he says it's basically only convincing to those who are already bought into the theory. That's how um, poor it is in substantiating it. And what's unique about Denton is he was being intellectually honest, and, and he was being forthright with the information. He wasn't buying into a particular worldview or joining the club. He was saying, here, here are some legitimate issues with it, and we need to address these. And of course, in some ways, he was he was the punching boy for a lot of classical Darwinian individuals. So, well, thanks for that, Joe. Luke, let's now turn to you. We know when we we're talking about evolution, we really do need to distinguish between what we know as microevolution and macroevolution. Uh, to give our listeners uh, a general um, distinguishing factor of that, Microevolution would be small changes within a species. So let's use dogs, canines. You know, you could get small dogs, you'll get a little chihuahua, and then you'll get a big dog, such as a greyhound or a, you know, Irish wolfhound. And they're still the same species. They're still dogs, but that would be changes within species. So that would be akin to microevolution. Whereas macroevolution, is more akin for a fish going into or evolving into 
a different species of animals, let's say a um, an amphibian and then into a reptile and then to a mammal. So Luke, distinguish between uh, microevolution and macroevolution and, and maybe just as a springboard, what I said, just just give our listeners a little bit of of why these two things are are important to to understand. So I think there was a you did a great job there, Brian, in digging into that in particular. And microevolution would be small changes over time within a species. What we would consider this even more technically is the loss or latency of particular portions of genetic information within a population that causes the prominence of particular features. This as an idea actually goes against Darwin's understanding, which was that additional genetic information would be added to a particular organism based on environmental circumstances, competition, et cetera, other systems and subsystems he was theorizing. But what we found is some people would say, well, this is like natural selection, you know, and there's a lot of semantics there, but we've noticed that in certain populations in certain areas that the organism does tend to adapt, but does so by losing genetic information, creating a similarity for the purposes of survivability within that specific environment. And we would call this microevolution. It is definitely observable, and it is definitely something that uses guardrails of the existing genome for the organisms in that environment. It does not break through the guardrails. Macroevolution in particular, that's like the evolutionist's holy grail. As of yet, there's really no proof of this. This is where a lot of the major debates come from in that they're looking for this to the almost to the exclusion of their scientific process at some point. What's interesting here is that an archbishop in uh, Dublin in an April 7th, 1860 issue of The Spectator, which was an English magazine, wrote in contradistinction to Darwin's theory, having just been openly published in 1859, and he, he basically states that he has a great aversion to this theory because of its unflinching materialism, because it has deserted the inductive track. I'm quoting here and the only track that leads to physical truth because it utterly repudiates final causes and thereby indicates a demoralized understanding on the part of its advocates. And he clarifies, he says, by the word demoralized, I mean a want of capacity for comprehending the force of moral evidence, which is dependent on the highest faculties of our nature. And he's mentioning this particularly in regard to macroevolution in that it sets aside the ideas of the need for evidence, pointing that even at that point in Darwin's theory, there was a clear disagreement with this mode of discovery. But Darwin would say things like, for instance, and this gentleman actually mentions this, he says, in some rare instances, Darwin shows a wonderful credulity. He seems to believe that a white bear, by being confined to the slopes floating in the polar basin, might in time be turned into a whale. He's not being facetious. This is actually in Darwin's Origin of Species. Or that a lemur might easily be turned into a bat. And he goes on. 
this is an example of what we would call macroevolution, as you so aptly described, where strangely, a perfectly adapted creature, an aquatic creature, for some reason, would decide that it needs to be a land-based creature or a land-based creature would decide to be an aerial creature. And this this is self-defeating because these organisms are supposed to be perfectly adapted to their environment. But in order to get to the idea of macroevolution, he began to postulate how these changes could have occurred in these creatures, changing them literally from one kind of creature into another, as opposed to the micro, which is a clear adaptation to a local environment. Yeah, that that's that's really great. Thanks for that, Luke. You know, I taught science. Now, let me just clarify for our listeners that I do not have a science degree. My son has a master's in a science degree. I do not, but I did teach science. I taught uh, four years of science, both biological science and earth science on the junior high and high school levels. And I walked my students through um, to really think through this difference between microevolution and macroevolution, you know, and you use the term adaptability. And that, that was really helpful, Luke, because, you know, certain species can adapt in their given environment. They will adapt. But transferring from an adaptive system to a whole brand new system requires so much more than that organism is really capable of doing in in a very forthright way. So I I brought my students through this thought process. Joe, you'll like this. I always call them uh, Larry the fish, or and sometimes I would you know give the female. But you know I said okay, just picture in your mind a fish. And classic Darwinian thought goes that Larry somehow made it up onto the land. So let's walk through this, students. What does Larry need as the fish to get from the water-based environment to the land? And so the students, high school students, would go, okay, well, um, the obviously is he needs legs. I said, great. Okay, so we'll, we'll just say through some weird somatic mutation, some weird genetic mutation, he was able to get legs. I said, but first of all, do legs help or hinder him in the water? Well, they go, well, hinder him because he's going to be slower and other fish are going to eat him. I go, yeah, exactly. But I said, let's give the benefit of the doubt and say Larry was able to get on land. I said, what's going to happen? And they're going to say, well, he's going to just walk out. I go, no, think about this. Larry needs something else. They go, oh yeah, he needs lungs. So I go, okay. So Larry needs legs and he needs lungs. So let's just say for some weird somatic adaptation you know, mutation that Larry got both legs and lungs. And I go, and he was able to walk outside and land. I go, well, what happens there? And they go, well, he, he'll be fine. I go, no, Larry's not. I go, because, and this is my L, you know, associations. I go, his lenses, he, he doesn't have the right set of eyes out to, for land. So, and then I go back and you, you see the process. I go, so let's just say by some weird situation, he, he developed by a mutation, legs, lungs, and the lens, the eyes, and he gets out there and then they go, oh yeah. Okay. So he, he had all these mutations and now he's free and clear. I go, no, I go, no, he's not. I go, he doesn't have the lumbar, the brain power to, to think in this new environment. So not only does he need his legs and you know evolved not only does he need his lungs evolved and his lenses his eyes he needs his lumbar his brain to be evolved 
And then I said, but let's just say by some weird freak thing, he got all of those in some weird somatic mutation and he got all these and he gets out on the land and everything seems peachy and everyone and all the kids are going, yeah, yeah. You know, that's what happened. I go, well, there's only one problem with Larry. There's no ladies. So, so how, how is he going to propagate and procreate with all these new gen- genetic material out there. And so what I did by that that thought process is show them how difficult it is to go from a similar little adaptive system to a macroevolution. It, it's not just some simply where some, oh, it just evolved. There's so many factors going on between macro and micro evolution. So Luke, we appreciate that. And I know we took a lot of time with that, but it's important for our listeners to think through this. So Joe, Besides what I just said, what are some of the problems with classical Darwinian evolution? Well, there's a laundry list full of problems, um, but we'll be brief uh, in order to give you several of them. First of all, they can't even get off the ground when it comes to the origin of life. There is no viable mechanism to generate what they would call a primordial soup as a basis or the building blocks of life itself. In fact, many of the evolutionists appealed for decades to the Miller-Urey experiment where there was supposedly a building blocks of life would have arisen under a naturalistic, realistic environment. And so the scientists put it to the test. They said that the environment was full of reducing gases like uh, ammonia, methane, uh, high levels of hydrogen. But the only problem is, and there's more than one problem with that, is that first of all, geochemists today do not think that those three gases I just mentioned were actually part of the early uh, conditions for this primordial soup. Uh, They don't even believe that they were in existence in the appreciable levels to be able to generate first life. And what happens is you also have introduced the scientist, which is an intelligent cause, into the experiment, which is exactly what creationists are saying. And secondly, there is no mechanism to account for the DNA or the information systems that are present within life forms, whether it's a simple form like an amoeba that has tons of information in DNA or a human cell that has tons of information in DNA. There is no mechanism they can point to as the causal agent to account for the specific complexity involved in a language-like DNA structure. Evolutionists, in fact, can't even answer several philosophical questions. How can life come from non-life? Louis Pasteur sterilized his beaker in the 19th century and showed us that life can't come where there is no life. Um, How does order come from non-order? That doesn't happen unless you introduce an agent, an intelligent agent to bring order into an environment. Uh, How do you get intelligence from non-intelligence? How do you get something from nothing? You see, all these things have to be answered by the evolutionists, but there is no answer that they can provide because there's no mechanism that can stand in the place to account for the world the way we see it today. And if they appeal to natural selection, 
which is simply the survival of the fittest. It weeds out the weak in an environment or a species or a kind, but it can't add any advantage to the kinds that we have today. It simply removes the weak and allows the strong to pursue, but it doesn't add anything extra or an advantage that can be passed on ultimately to something else to grow and evolve from there. So these are just the beginning of a host of philosophical and scientific problems that will plague this theory uh, for generations. So good. Thanks for that, Joe. So, Luke, evolutionists often give support for their theory using a variety of discoveries. You know, it seems like Every year, there's something new that an evolution is claiming proves evolution is true. But what what we find upon further investigation that either some of these these discoveries are either out and out false or they're very inconclusive and they don't really support evolution as many evolutionists would have you think. Can you give us some idea of what some of these discoveries were and, and why they fall short? Sure, Brian. There, there really are a lot of them. I'm only going to take two because they're probably most present as names in the public mind so that we can help our folks connect to this. But the first one I think that is probably stuck in the memory of many scientists as a scandal is the Piltdown Man. There's actually a memorial to the people who discovered it, albeit that may have been premature. But uh, Charles Dawson fellow who was an amateur archaeologist stated that in a gravel quarry he had discovered various pieces of a skeleton a skull and some other pieces around the area and he brought this to a couple of his colleagues and they started putting things together and it ended up becoming the Piltdown Man, which was then shown to a number of official people, some of whom were very much excited and convinced because the lower portion of the skull appeared to be something other than human and therefore being merged with a human cranial cavity and the lower skull. They thought it was a symbol of a missing link. It finally showed that. But some were really not happy about it because they didn't believe that the current understanding of other fossils that were supposed to show human evolution would have evolved in this manner, i.e. the bottom of the jaw being different in what would be expected or predicted by the other evolutionary models. Come to find out it was studied and it was a fraud uh, and not just because people didn't know what they were doing. There were specific things that were done to it. The teeth had been filed down. The skull had been pieced together from three different species. The jaw and teeth had been treated with an iron solution and chromic acid, which is similar to sulfuric acid, to make it look a lot older than it was and to simulate the kinds of wear and surface erosion significantly associated with, with age. So it was a very deliberate and clever fraud, and it persisted for almost 50 years before, I think in 1953, they finally just slammed the door on the thing. But that's a long time for that to have been circulating in the scientific community. The second one, which probably everybody's familiar with, is Lucy. You, there's still shows going, and I think the Bones just went on tour again or something like that. Pretty interesting how three million-year-old bones can just be carted around the country, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> but it was a discovery made in Ethiopia of the skeleton of an extinct ape. That's the actual truth of the issue. And it was told to be a human ancestor. 
but it's missing. As you mentioned, sometimes these are out and out deliberate fraud. Sometimes they're ambiguous. And this is one of those ambiguous ones where, you know, if it weren't for the recognition of the existing parts, maybe a case could be made. But 160 of the 207 bones of the skeleton are, they don't exist. But, you know, not only is the age in question at 3 million years, but there's enough of the skeleton there for us to say, this is nothing like what we would expect a human ancestor, if we even accepted that premise, to look like. There is issues about the, the mobility that's very much more similar to an ape or an anthropoid than a homo sapien. And so it simply doesn't qualify as a transitional fossil and does not have a clear lineage due to its extinction. That's that's so good, Luke. Thank you for that. And, and Joe, in your book, Living Loud, you, you even give more. You talk about the Nebraska man, the Peking man, the Java man, the ne- Neanderthal man. And we know there's there's more and more. But the point is, these are very inconclusive, you know, evidences for for evolution. So um, it's very important for our listeners to to understand before they just buy into some new quote unquote discovery, they need to really look at it. So the converse, Joe, of evolution is what we call intelligent design or creation that that we firmly believe there is an intelligent being, God, who created the world, you know, with with purpose, with personality, with life. So what are some of the scientific evidences that we as Christians and even theists generally have that the world was created and not evolved? Well, the first and foremost is we have information systems within the biological world. We have cellular DNA. It's like a language being written out. It has instructions and it has messaging. It has all this wonderful, what scientists called specific complexity, a specified complexity. And so when we look up into the sky and see buy Michelin tires this Sunday on sale, we don't think it's just a a random chance formation of clouds arranging itself, that there must have been an intelligent cause to cause that. It was a skywriter. Or when we look at the faces of Mount Rushmore, we see that there must have been an intelligent cause because we recognize the specific and complex markers of these faces to represent four presidents. So, You have what you call a looking for a uniformity. Some people call that the principle of analogy. And that's what thought and science should be based on is a principle of uniformity. Basically, it's the present that tells us about the past. And that's how we can know what happened in the past. And since the present, we see that it takes intelligent causes to produce a specified, complex, and informational system, it would be wise to posit as a cause an intelligent cause. A natural cause, on the other hand, would give you the Grand Canyon, a hole in the ground. It would give you just random uh, waves crashing on the ocean. It would give you ripples in the sand, if you would. It doesn't have that specified complexity. And unfortunately, the theory of evolution lacks that component. Instead, they use what you call uniformitarianism. And the principle of uniformitarianism 
also says the present is the key to understanding the past. But what they do is eliminate any type of singular supernatural event as possible for creating or bringing about intelligent life. In other words, they preclude the whole option of seeking a supernatural event because only thing they see today is the natural world causing natural effects. And unfortunately, if they stay in that uniformitarianism, they will never see a supernatural cause to the world, the fine-tuning of the universe. We see for example, the Cambrian explosions, some of the secular scientists say 550 million years ago, these plant life, animal life, and human life exploded on the scene fully formed. There's no transitional forms included in these uh, classes and phyla and so forth. They are completely and fully formed. And that's what makes it so important to have an open mind when it comes to thinking about how these natural effects got here, because it doesn't make sense to say the natural world caused the natural world. It's like saying I caused myself to exist. You have to have something outside the natural world in order to account for bringing into being that natural world. It's almost like the natural world is a box. And that box, if your cause is inside that box, it also is natural. So essentially you're saying that I can create myself. That's absurd because you'd have to exist and not exist at the same time in order to bring yourself into being, which is a contradiction in terms. So you have to look supra nature or supernatural as the cause to account for what we see in our world today. So good, Joe. So, so very good. And, and, and what's great is that there are many scientists throughout history and including today who do take a supranatural. They, they understand the limitations of classical Darwinian evolution, and they're willing to look at an intelligent being. They're willing to look to see if there's a God and, you know, we call that natural philosophy or natural theology and all of these type of things. They're using nature to understand God more, more um, thoroughly. And so there is, our history is ripe of, of these individuals. So Luke, I thought maybe you would just, uh, being the historian that you are, um, talk about some of these leading scientists that have been believers, you know, they're, they're Christians. Give us a few examples of men and women who were both respected scientists and devout Christians. So there's many, many of these throughout the historical record, and I appreciate the opportunity to speak to it. Um, Mary Anning, I'm going to start with the ladies, just give a couple examples of some ladies and a couple examples of some gentlemen. But she was 18th, 19th century, and interestingly enough, not only being a Christian, but she discovered the first pleosaur specimen, and in addition to that, began to make constructions or reconstructions of what the diet of dinosaurs looked like. She was an Anglican, and so definitely a believer, and yet was very influential in her field at the time that she lived, 1700s to 1800s. Uh, Florence Nightingale is another one, a very well-known name, and she was re responsible for transforming nursing 
it's stated, some have said that she added as much as 20 years to human life expectancy because of how she came and used statistical data, basically tracking and trending how treatments were affecting patients in order to help basically anyone who's ever gone into a hospital at this point, her scientific approach to the discipline of nursing allowed her to be very significant as a figure, and she was a vibrant Christian. Now, those are the ladies in the 19th and 20th century and the 18th and 19th. And then there's also some gentlemen, everyone knows this name, Isaac Newton. Some don't know that he actually wrote more about theology than he did about physics. Hundreds and hundreds of pages of theological items. Now, it doesn't mean that we agree with everything he said theologically, but he was definitely a Christian who posited God and his existence as the foundation for what he was discovering in the laws of physics. It's actually what drove him to postulate these things and to test them to see if there were any exceptions found to them was his understanding of the nature of God. And he was in the 17th and 18th century. Johann Kepler, another devout Christian, for the same types of reasons that Isaac Newton postulated certain things, began to look very much into the discipline of astronomy. Now, he had been trained in a German university as a theologian before this, and it was his theological training that as he began to study the heavens, it made sense that you know the word planet basically means wanderer, and this was the medieval idea, even though there were some things that were going, they couldn't quite get things in order. And he began to really talk about the movement of planets and develop what would be a more, much more modern scientific view of astronomy. So a significant contribution to what we know of what's out there beyond the Earth's atmosphere. So so good. And, and as you said, Luke, we could go on and on. You know, and Joe, your book, Living Loud, you give us a short list. You know, these include Blaise Pascal, um, Michael Faraday, uh, Gregor Mendel, Louis Pasteur, and the list goes on. I mean, these are giants in, in, in the science, uh, science community. And so historically faith and reason were not two separate entities like they are. They were really just two sides of the same coin. You know, that people believe that there was a God who created the earth and we're discovering this brilliance of this high, high, perfect intelligence. And we will spend all eternity still uncovering the brilliance of who God is. So, Joe, a lot of people will say, well, and you've already kind of alluded to it, they just will not take intelligent design or creation as, as a, 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 they, they won't even consider it. They, they move it out of their realm of, of, of the scientific world. And one of the things that they, they will say against Christians or other theists, be it Muslims or Jews or, or, or whoever, is that intelligent design or creationism is not a science. It's not science. You guys are bringing in a super being, so therefore it's not science. How would you respond to someone who says intelligent design or creationism is not science? I think they have to remember what creation and evolution, what their domains are. 
uh, creation looks at nature the same way evolution looks at nature. So they are both what you call an origin science. And on the other hand, there are people who call themselves operation scientists. An origin scientist studies the past. It studies a singular event, much like creation and evolution. These are events that don't happen today under the microscope. We don't see them in real time. So what they have to do is look at them like a forensic scientist. And that forensic scientist has to cobble together the evidence that they see, the the remains that they have, whether it be bones or plant life or or whatever it might be, and then form a conclusion about what happened to cause these particular remains to be such. And so the big trade secret is that evolutionists much of the time want you to think that they're operation scientists that see evolution in real time. They don't. Astronomers are operation scientists. They see the rotation of the planets. They see the the elliptical orbits. They see them in real time and they can repeat these things. Whereas origin scientists, of which evolution and creation happen to be classified as, it discovers what happened in the past. They're unrepeatable. They study how things originated. Operation science studies how things continue to operate. And so when you try to foist either uh, creation into an operation science, it's like a category mistake. And people say, look, it's not science. Well, of course it is, but you're trying to compare it to operation science. This is what we call origin science. It's a forensic type of science. And uh, that's what the archaeologist does. And that's also what the paleontologist does. They're both classified as origin scientists. So good. So very good. So, Luke, I know you're not a working scientist. Uh, neither am I. Neither is Joe. Um, but I'm going to pose a question to you. Why do you suppose so many scientists accept evolution as a fact and deny that there is some kind of intelligence or that there is some sort of design and purpose in in our world? What, what, what's your thoughts? It's a great question, Brian. And I think probably the most prominent example of this that keeps popping up in various places is Richard Dawkins who states that the world, in response to certain assertions by origin scientists, the world isn't actually designed. It has the appearance of design. And in the opening book, opening chapters of his book called The Greatest Show on Earth, he plays this shell game with the primary, secondary, and tertiary definitions of several similar words in order to imply or assert that there's effectively no absolute barrier between a hypothesis and a law scientifically. Therefore, by the same token, evolution is a fact. Now, even if he was doing that a little tongue-in-cheek, it nonetheless demonstrates the constant pressure exerted by evolutionists to overstate the solidarity of their foundations. In actuality, evolution is a pseudo-hypothesis in that a true hypothesis was to be an educated guess. And that's not only about uneducated and educated in the sense of intelligent or unintelligent. It means it was to be empirical. And Darwin deliberately misconstrued and fabricated items through extrapolation 
that were not empirical in any sense. And he was called on the carpet on this multiple times in the examination of his of his theory or what he called the theory. His predictions were wrong and his, quote, theory, unquote, is simply unrealistic in the extreme. Despite this, I believe folks hold to it because of, number one, a pride and an unwillingness to suffer the inevitable scrutiny that comes if one disagrees with the current scientific establishment. Number two, a lot of folks have literally been taught that there's no alternative and that anything other than the theory of evolution is primitive or superstitious. Three, some folks have just simply been assimilated by the cultural narrative. They've been overwhelmed by the pervasiveness and the sheer volume of material that's out there, as well as the pejorative view that's promoted along with it. My final opinion, I think, is far more basic. C.S. Lewis, in chapter 13 of the Chronicles of Narnia book, The Last Battle, talks about a scenario where how the dwarves refused to be taken in. And he makes the quote after discussing the scenario, no man is so blind as he who will not see. And Romans 1 confirms this as well. So I feel that they seek these solutions because they're not willing to actually deal with the implications of the empirical world in which we have been placed. And they have often lost sight of their own inconsistencies in the pursuit of this worldview. So good, Luke. And I love that you brought in C.S. Lewis. So, I mean, you have to make a C.S. Lewis you know, integration <laughs> here and there. So good. So Joe and Luke, as we always do uh, at the end of each broadcast, you know, we're just we're just on the tip of the iceberg here. There's so much more. So we always encourage our listeners to go deeper, to get books and to read and investigate them um, themselves. So let's start with you, Joe. What what books would you recommend our listeners to dig more deeply into this subject of Darwin and evolution? Well, I would highly recommend Stephen Meyer's book, uh, Darwin's Doubt. And um, that book was written recently, and it really goes through these wonderful um, evidences for the explosion of fully formed fossil records, and also at the same time highlights where Darwin's doubt is as well. And, you know, Darwin himself even uh, was puzzled by the intricacy and the ornateness of the human eye. How could all these things come together? He had no answer for this. It really stumped him. And ultimately, he said, basically, if it can be shown that um, that my uh, theory can't come together in these evolutionary models by slight and successive changes and so forth, that his model would simply break down. And we're seeing far deeper into the human self today. We're seeing deeper into biology and nature that Darwin never saw what we're seeing today. But yet you still have these evolutionists hanging on to this. And I think some of it's for intellectual reasons because they have bought into um, a host of false assumptions. And it's only limiting their decisions to natural options and not supernatural. For the Christian, we can choose natural or supernatural. We're open to either wherever the evidence points. Um, but also, it could be the moral issue that's holding them back. And that's um, maybe they don't want to be told what to do. They don't want any moral accountability or there may be, you know, they don't want to be told who they can see and not see and be intimate with and so forth. And But I love that book because it brings a lot of those science issues together. 
Um, just a wonderful Darwin's Doubt by Stephen Meyer. So good. So it, it, it really is a great book. Um, how about you, Luke? What, what book or books would you recommend our listeners? That was actually one of my books, so I'm glad to hear it recommended by uh, Dr. Holden. Um, I have Darwin on Trial by Philip Johnson, 1991. Mm -hmm. This is a very step-by-step courtroom-styled examination of evidence, and I think it really brings a lot of light to what the gaps are in the things that are being presented and how they do not appropriately make the case, as is often presented to the public as if it's a done deal, it's a closed book. Second one, and I've mentioned this before, but I'm going to mention it again because it's so excellent. That's Darwin's House of Cards by Tom Bethel. This is a must read to find out who is saying what and who are the go-to folks who are doing the experiments, who are on the cutting edge of what was considered that. And each successive generation, really throughout the 20th century, and then lastly, replacing Darwin, the new origin of species. This is done by uh, Nathaniel Johnson, PhD from Harvard in cell and developmental biology. And he goes in and talks about that 15% of information that Darwin had and how much bigger the picture is, as Dr. Holden had referred to, how much more we know now, which makes even less of what Darwin was predicting as uh, to be something that's reliable. It's like we have no need of that at this point because we see so much more. So any one of those I would highly recommend for a deep dive into this. If I might add one more book, Brian and Luke, uh, Evolution, A Theory in Crisis by Michael Denton. Mm. And I recommend this book because it is written from the non-believer's point of view, a former evolutionist's point of view. And there's a lot of uh, books out there that we can see that are written by Christians, but this one would be a really good read to hear it from one who's on the inside and seen it without the Christian worldview uh, determining where to go. And many of the same arguments within Christianity are going to be found present in that book by Denton. Yeah, and I would throw in Darwin's Black Box by Michael Behe. You know, he 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 does that and he takes the eye on. You know, let let's just look at the complexity of the eye and just talks about how difficult classical Darwinian evolution would happen just with the eye. And then the more recent book, a gentleman by the name of Douglas Axe, who's part of the Discovery Institute, he wrote a book called Undeniable. And that's another great book. So, gentlemen, this has been an enriching uh I, I can't tell you how much I love uh, this podcast, just listening to this, and I sure hope our listeners are um, are getting uh, as much as I am from this. And, and by the way, you can pick up this uh, podcast on YouTube. It's now available, and we would encourage our listeners to um, seek out other ways to listen to this podcast. Next week, Joe and Luke, our next episode will ask the question, what about other worldviews? So until next time, continue to proclaim the gospel, equip the saints, and defend the faith. Mm-hmm.